Here we go. Welcome back to 96 Greers, a podcast where we watch every feature film with Judy Greer in the cast. Who are we? Well, I am Reg. And I am Patrick. And we are your podcast guides through the land of Judy Greer. So here's the thing. Usually when... We record this podcast. It's a weekday evening. You know, I've had a day of work being responsible, giving my time to the man. And then we have dinner and we set up for the podcast. And we that's what the plan was for today. Yeah. But I woke up this morning uh, covered in hives. Horrible. So, uh, All over. <laughs> so I... Uh, took the day off and we went to an urgent care facility and they prescribed me some antihistamines and antihistamines make you a little sleepy. Yeah. So this is going to be like a, you know, um, like, like late night listening, you know, about to put on some, put some, about to put some Barry White on the turntable. Should I go a little, do you want to go a little lower? Yeah, see if I can go a little lower. You are going a little lower. Oh, am I going a little lower? Okay, that's good, yeah. Gotta make space in the back of your throat. Space in the back of my throat. That's how you lower your voice. That's where my voice is coming from. Yeah. And we're all just gonna chill. Yeah. Uh, Except for you driving 10 and 2! No, No, we already (laughs) did that joke. We don't do that joke again. (laughs) Um, you know what really amps me up though? What really amps you up? Montage is set to Ryan Adams. Oh baby. Oh boy. Do you have anything for me that could possibly uh, fulfill this need, this deep hole inside my heart? (laughs) Is it, is it a hole that is shaped like a really disturbing amount of mix CDs? Yes. Is it 2005? Because we are here this evening Mm -hmm. to discuss... Cameron Crowe's 2005 film, Elizabethtown. Now, we have brought some more obscure indie movies to this podcast that has been the majority of what we've covered. I maintain we are probably the only podcast to have an episode dedicated to the key man. It's quite possible, unless Brian Cox has like his own podcast that we don't know about. You know how it's like Stephen. Do we Kowalski have the explicit? Do we have the? We can only surmise what the title of that podcast would be if we have the explicit. My tag. life in accents, a Brian Cox <laughs> podcast. Um, but Elizabethtown um is from uh, a a well established director, Cameron Crowe, director of Say Anything, Almost Famous, Jerry Maguire, um, and this was a relatively big budget. Uh, release mm-hmm. in 2005 mm-hmm. back when you could you know the sort of the 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 last days where you could have a, a rom-com that was still like a like a big release yeah. this uh, is this is at the height of post uh lord of the rings but right in the middle of uh pirates of the caribbean mania orlando yeah. bloom yeah yeah now yeah. granted is the mania over pirates of the caribbean has that ever been about orlando bloom no but Still, technically, the lead of a massive Disney franchise. There's plenty of people who think he's super dreamy. Oh yeah, no, I was so. I was also on Live Journal in the <laughs> mid aughts. I remember. I remember. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, these are these are the days of, of Live Journal. To look, bring you back. look, I was I was 16 years old, so mm-hmm. I had nothing but resentment in my heart for the pretty boys. 
That's fair. This is uh, this is a movie that has gone down in the annals of history as being a, a flop. Yeah. Um, but we but Judy Greer is in the cast. That's true. And we believe in giving a movie its day in court. That's right. Um, so here we are. This this would be an insufferable podcast if we came because let's be real. Judy Greer is in far less, uh, you know, great Charlie Kaufman, Nicolas Cage comedies than she is just sort of like middling trash. That's true. So like this would be an insufferable podcast if we didn't come to each fi- if we came to each film looking to just dunk and clown on it. Right. It would just be very tedious. Yeah, this we- isn't this isn't a, a a Julie Christie podcast. This isn't a fucking Daniel Day-Lewis yeah. podcast that's 10 episodes long and jerks off Paul Thomas Anderson for 20% of the episodes. No, we will never jerk off Paul Thomas Anderson unless Judy Greer is in a movie of his in the future that's really good. I I, I mean, I, I'll keep my fingers crossed because I mean, I, I you can watch. I, I'll I, jerk him off. I jerk off PTA anyway. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm not, I'm not that precious. Anyway, I guess we do have that explicit tag. Um. <laughs> anyway, anyway, anyway. Welcome to the Elizabethtown podcast. Let's just um, let's get the plot summary out of the way before I get more incoherent. No, that's true. We Here should do that. Here we go. Drew Baylor is an up-and-coming sneaker designer who is fired when his latest design is a billion-dollar disaster for his company. His plans for suicide are put on hold when he is informed that his father Mitch has died unexpectedly. Mitch's body is in Elizabethtown, Kentucky, where he was visiting family. Drew's sister Heather and mother Holly stay in Oregon while Drew travels to Elizabethtown to accompany the body home. On the flight to Kentucky, Drew crosses paths with Claire, a quirky and free-spirited flight attendant who sticks around to help him make funeral preparations, reunite with extended family, and learn a little something about life. Can't can't get away from that. It's a Cameron Crowe movie, baby. <laughs> That's true. That's true. So, um, you know, I, I was thinking. So, so just to kind of um, go back to um, the day I've been having. So, the doctors, have you eaten anything different? Are you using different skincare products? Are you near an animal? Like, you know, what's been different? And I've been like racking my brains trying to figure out like like why I just had this like random allergic attack seemingly out of nowhere. You know what I did this weekend that I brought into my life. <laughs> That I that was not a factor before is Elizabethtown. Just, your, your skin spontaneously <laughs> breaks into a rash yeah. when uh, Kirsten Dunst does her little uh, photograph in oh, the air move. Yeah, her yeah. Little, uh, finger click. Yeah, yeah. Oh my, yeah. That I'm, I'm wondering. I'm wondering if it was just my body was like having a reaction to this movie. So, so at this, I feel like at this point we are like ten years removed from the thing that Elizabethtown is probably at this point most famous for because the thing about a bad uh, romantic comedy is it's not part of any kind of superhero universe or anything it's right. the, it, they, the notoriousness of the bad romantic comedy doesn't really have a huge half-life there's not a big uh, nuclear nuclear blast radius and it's just people keep talking about how bad it is it kind of came and went like i was working at blockbuster in 2005 2006 and this had just come out on video Uh and it was it wasn't like a oh my god did you hear about this movie it was just like it was like anything else it it was like sweet home alabama some people would come up and rent it and return it and you'd ask them what they thought and they go yeah that was fine or whatever right um the the biggest sort of cultural impact this has 
is that Nathan Rabin had a very popular uh, column on the internet back when you could have a really popular column <laughs> on the internet before the shift of the pivot to video. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, the, he, he was the head writer for AV Club when AV Club was still writing articles and essays of some substance. And anyway. in, instead of using AI, you mean? <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's the new cool. That's the new thing that uh, our favorite uh, po- our pop culture website has uh, devolved into. Um, and then R.I.P. the the, uh, the uh, EIC in his defense, like misspelled two words. <laughs> he misspelled AV Club. I think it was, it was some. It's some insane thing. It's not re- It's not relevant. But Nathan Rabin had a very popular column called "My Year of Flops," where he looked at films that were um, big failures, big flops that you know Commercial lost a lot failures, of yeah, yeah lost money at the box office, and he examines why they didn't hit. And like sometimes they were great, but they just were the wrong movie at the wrong time. And sometimes mm-hmm. they're like totally forgettable. And it's just oh yeah, they spent too much money on a thing that no one was going to go see. Yeah. And then sometimes he uh, he he they were what he de- deemed fiascos, where someone swung so hard mm-hmm. and missed the mark so much that what resulted was like a spectacular failure. And this language of failure and fiasco is taken from Elizabethtown. This is the movie that inspired the column. That's right. And this, uh, in his very first article for this column, he coined the term Manic Pixie Dream Girl. To describe Kirsten Dunst's character, Claire. Um, Which, yeah, so... When we talk about why this is the kind of movie that might make you break out in hives, if you don't know anything about Elizabethtown, it is like unbearably cloying and cutesy and uh, twee. It is. It is. I would describe it as cloying and cutesy. I would not describe it as twee. I would describe it as someone was drinking and they heard the definition of twee and they said that's going to be my next movie <laughs> and then they tried to recre- recreate what they thought twee meant well, yeah, and came up with elizabeth town i think you're right because i think when you look at the the twee things that hit uh the thing that those movies do uh are the the way those movies diverge from Elizabethtown is those movies had their finger on some kind of zeitgeist that was happening in yes. the mid to late aughts in the yes. early 2010s uh that this movie is totally off the mark Th- this this is Cameron Crowe saying how do you do fellow teens yes in to to the the hipsters of 2005 regardless of what we all think about it now there was a time in which 500 days of summer felt like something that was like fresh and part of a thing that was culturally happening everywhere there's nothing about elizabethtown that you can click into and go like oh yeah this is really what it was like in 2005 this was the year after garden state and um Part of preparing for the podcast, I I went back and I watched Garden State for the first time since it came out, basically, um, because they do have a lot of similarities. I mean, not only in um, the mid-aughts precious indie um, flavor that a lot of these sort of, um, you know, uh, significant films had, uh, especially, um, you know, I was was in college at at the time, so I feel like um, this was kind of... Uh, the time where I was sort of in my personal peak in terms of uh, like being fashionable. You sure, know what I mean? Sure, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was kind of a hipster. So movies like this, I feel, like, I feel like really trying to connect with me where I was in that point in my life. And Garden State is a deeply flawed movie, but it hits that mark in a way that Elizabethtown 
just does not. Um, and and then thinking about like other movies around that era, like Royal Tenenbaums, Little Miss Sunshine, um, you know, in in that sort of uh, cultural moment, and watching Elizabeth Town just makes me think about how other films, even if they're not perfect and and even if they are flawed, just have a better understanding of the energy and the aesthetic yeah than than elizabethtown does i think that was the thing that was most surprising to me because usually when i don't like a movie it's because i think it's poorly thought out in terms of the characters or it's condescending to the audience or or there's no care put into the aesthetic of the film and I think this is a film that visually is very pleasing um I think this is a film that was uh as you said this is a Cameron Crowe movie so there is a a tenderness to it and there is a desire to see um very sincere people have very sincere emotions and connect with each other um, and have it all set to a, a, a beautiful heart wrenching pop score. Yeah. And Elizabeth town definitely does all those things, but it also tries to be um, the kind of indie film that would exist in this time period and just completely doesn't understand how to do that. And I think that was the most surprising aspect of it to me in terms of, I, I just went into this knowing, okay, manic pixie dream girl and people don't like it. And I didn't really know why. And I mean, we'll get into it, but that that's the thing that stands out the most to me. I think this movie is the product of one key thing and every single choice made camera crow makes as a writer and as a director Mm -hmm. are all stem from this one key thing which is i think elizabeth town is a radical act of self-love and when i say self-love i mean like i kind of 50 50 mean self-love and masturbation sure (laughs) um but i think this is the movie that comes out of someone like cameron crow when he tells himself that there are no bad ideas and that he should follow his instincts and he should not listen to any cynic or critic yeah. like Cameron Crowe. Do you even have cynics in your head? Like you, the, <laughs> I've seen the movies you produce. You don't, you don't seem like you have a cynical bone in your body, but like mm-hmm. this is, this is him shedding off all possible sort of like safety rails of being like, is this going too far? Is that going yeah. too far? And him, every time he has an idea when he's writing this script, which, pinwheels all over the place this is such a chaotic script tonally mm-hmm. uh in terms of what happens in terms of uh yeah. weird uh set pieces involving videotapes uh it's <laughs> involving all sorts of things it felt like every single time he had an idea he said yes and mm. there are movies where people do that and it works i feel like the most indulgent wes anderson movies feel like that to me mm-hmm. where wes anderson is not overly concerned with every element neatly locking into place and resonating mm-hmm. with each other he just has a font of ideas 
that he's going to get out on paper. What you're going to get is very direct and personal. Uh-huh. And sometimes that's really effective for me. And, and sometimes it's French Dispatch. Well, I was going to say sometimes it's Asteroid City, which I know you you love, but I, <laughs> I, I, I like French Dispatch much more than I love Asteroid City. Oh. Um, but at any rate, like I think Wes Anderson just has better taste. And so like... But there's like still plenty of people who, when they see French Dispatch and Asteroid City, they go, "Ugh, like God sure. damn, it's Wes Anderson being too Wes Anderson-y. Yeah. Um, but like this movie feels like Cameron Crowe just sort of saying yes to himself. So this was a film. This is a movie about failure. Uh, it's a movie where Orlando Bloom comes up with a weird shoe inspired by manta rays that he wanted to feel like walking on a cloud. Apparently yeah. they didn't do any research when they released it to the market. So no, they just had a Christmas party in the office where he yells, we contained magic in a shoe and everyone cheers. Um, and which is that a lot of, a lot of this movie is people making very inane declarations as loud as they can and everyone around them radically supporting them. Yes. Um, and uh, this is a movie that was made after the movie Vanilla Sky, which is a uh, Cameron Crowe movie that flopped, which there are many reasons why that could be. It was like a weird, complicated, very hard to market movie. It came mm-hmm. out right after 9-11 where people were not in the mood for that sort of thing. Uh, it's not it's not as bad as this. I personally think it's better than something like Almost Famous. But again, like that's personal taste or whatever. It's way less marketable than Almost Famous. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is it was a movie that did not. You know, following up Jerry Maguire, doing another Tom Cruise movie, having these big stars in it. Um, it was a movie that did not do what he wanted it to. And he had had a crossroads in front of him where he goes, I can start rethinking how I'm choosing projects and how I'm following my instincts. And like considering just because I had a massive hit like Jerry Maguire and then a massive critical hit before that with Almost Famous, like maybe that doesn't mean I'm like the golden boy who can do everything right. Maybe Mm -hmm. that means, you know, maybe that means that I actually have stakes now to my career and I got to really think about what my next move is going to be. Or I can say it's okay that I failed. It is okay, and I'm going to prove to myself that it's okay, and that it's, it doesn't reflect anything on me personally by making my next project going even harder. And that is, I think, what produces Elizabeth Town. I could see that. I could absolutely see that. Indie movies are a bigger thing all of a sudden. The, the, the kids are doing weird sort of craft project stuff with all the, the hip music, so why not feel empowered by that? If you're Cameron Crowe, I right. guess. I would say that this is a big swing in a lot of ways. Um, and it does feel like it is trying to bring in um, elements of his better received movies. Uh, you know, it, it has the it has the 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 musical road trip aspects of almost famous. It it has the uh Two people at a crossroads falling in love aspects of Say Anything, also Jerry Maguire, but it doesn't come together the way any of those other movies do. Um, I will say, like, everything works against itself in really fundamental ways, even, mm -hmm. which is to say this is a story about a son whose father just died. It's about how that son processes that grief. Mm -hmm. It's about that son coming, ostensibly coming to learn something about his father by going back to the the father's hometown. 
what Orlando Bloom learns about his father in this movie at all is very debatable to me. Yeah. There's like a big emotional thing at the end where he literally goes on a road trip with his dad's ashes and scatters them at all these important American uh, historical sites, Mm -hmm. including, uh, of course, the uh, hotel where Martin Luther King Jr. got shot because... Oh, God, that was the cringiest white liberal mid-aughts As as U2's In the Name of Love plays. Oh, my God. And then the line, because... um, Claire is doing a, a, a voiceover, um, you know, a- annotation of where she's sending him on, on this road trip because she is the manic pixie dream girl. And of course, you know, this is what she lives for is the is the Americana road trip. And she says about Martin Luther King, his death was only the beginning of his victory. Like <laughs> what kind of white nonsense Martin Luther King looked in the eyes of the sniper and said, if you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you can imagine, Lord Vader. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, like, and... <laughs> it was all part of his plan to get murdered. Just wait until my Irish anthem rock friends come along and immortalize me in a song. Like, oh, God. It's, it's horrible. So at any rate, that whole thing is supposed to be like the grand climactic yeah. catharsis of the movie. Yeah. But when you actually look at the events of the movie, it's like, what did he learn about his dad? It's like... Yeah. His dad's family loved him. Yeah. And... His hometown was important to him. His hometown was important to him, I suppose. other people who cared about him besides me and my mom and my sister. So it's like, there's a, there's a lot of drop balls in that effort. But, yeah. on the, but going back to what I was sort of originally saying, on a very base level, it's like, were the was the mom and the dad broken up? Because why was the dad in Kentucky when he died? It turns out there is a single line of dialogue that is said by someone off screen that explains why the body's in Kentucky to begin with. And then, but does not explain why no one else is going with Orlando Bloom. Yeah. So, like, I was very confused when I was watching this. Like, wait, what? So, what's the setup? Like, are they? How long has he lived in Kentucky? Did he not live in Kentucky? How long has he not lived in Kentucky? Yeah. When was the last time Orlando Bloom was here? You do have to watch the movie twice to really get a <laughs> handle on it because it's not explained well. I will say, um, preparing for this episode, uh, we did learn that the original cut of the movie is two and a half hours and that did not do well uh, at its premiere at the Toronto International Film Fest. You, you want to talk about saying yes to yourself. Making a movie like this and also making it two and a half hours yeah. is like Cameron Crowe must have been so fucking high on his farts to, to, <laughs> to unleash that upon <laughs> TIFF audiences. But cutting over half an hour of this movie, I have to imagine that there was content about the character's who we meet in this movie that was cut out because you're right. We don't learn anything about Mitch. We don't, he has this blue suit that he loves so much and we have to get him in the, we have to get him in the blue suit for his funeral. Uh, and then, 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 um, then Drew has a line which is something like, there's something about the blue suit that's off, but I can't put my finger yeah, that, on that, it. That's never brought up and again. It's never, yeah, and it's never brought up Here again. Here are the or, things we know about him and his dad. Uh-huh. When they moved away from Kentucky, they held up boxes and spun in a circle. Yes. And now, at that point in the movie, we've already met Claire, the character Kirsten Dunst plays. Right. So we've already sort of encountered the most chaotic and horrible thing about the movie. But <laughs> that was the part where I thought maybe I was having a stroke, where there was just, I think, Tom Petty playing as slow motion footage of a boy at his dad spinning in circles in like magic hour sunlight coming through the windows like what the fuck is this and like 
it's okay. So he moved away from Kentucky and then he came back and, but like everyone knew who he was. And like literally when, when Mitch comes into Elizabethtown, the entire town has signs up about this man who hasn't lived there for 20 years. Yeah. It's very strange. It, so, so what we learn at the end of the movie is that, uh, Holly and Mitch Drew's parents, um, they, they met and it was love at first sight and they both kind of had their own lives. Um, Holly in California and Mitch in Elizabethtown. They have a chance meeting in Japan and they fall in love and they and they just kind of drop their their partners and, and they, they fall in love and they get married. And I guess Holly moves to Elizabethtown uh, and doesn't quite fit in because she's from, you know, she's a coastal elite (laughs) and uh, they have their two kids. And then Mitch is seemingly a career military person because the fact that he went to West Point is mentioned several times, Uh, but he has some business dealing with another person in the town, Bill Baylor and Bill screws him over and then they don't have any money and because they're in Kentucky and they don't have any money they have to move to California <laughs> so, which doesn't quite make so, sense so it's like central thing about this movie is like it isn't it isn't inherently like what a terrible movie no one acts realistically it's like fuck realism right. all right this movie can be as over the top and sincere and cloying or whatever as Cameron Crowe wants to make it. Mm-hmm. But the thing about that is then you have like you have all of this creative license because you don't have your have your characters operate in strict rules of reality. Then probably that should give you more freedom to tell a story that is emotionally coherent. But yeah. at any given point, it's extremely hard to figure out uh what's Orlando Bloom's character again? Drew. At any given point, it's extremely hard to figure out what Drew thinks or feels about anything that is happening and like what expectations he has and how those expectations change. It is. It seems like the movie is just sort of happening at him. Yeah. And he is this sort of like passive wall that the that the goodness of Kentucky is just sort of like projecting for onto. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I I, I would say that is both the failure of the script and also of. Orlando Bloom's performance. He's yes. just not very good in this role. He's not very good in um, any roles, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> so the nuclear family, Drew, his parents, Holly and Mitch, and his sister Heather, played by Judy Greer. Oh, we knew we'd get her in there somewhere. They moved to California, and the extended family and friends and community of Elizabethtown resent Holly for taking their favorite son away from his hometown. To the godless land of California. Yeah, and then, and then so their family lives on the West Coast, but apparently Mitch is the only one who goes back to visit Elizabethtown with any kind of regularity. Right. Um, because Holly's like, oh... Um, the whole town hates me. They resent me for taking your father away 27 years ago or, or what have you. And therefore I never visit, but he visits all the time and he is visiting, uh, he's visiting his uncle or his cousin or, or whomever when he has his heart attack and dies. And then Drew has to go back to Elizabethtown for the first time since he was a little kid. Uh, and kind of re-meet all of these people. The amount of uh, the the amount of the amount of effort you have to expend to follow all of this is 
so at odds with the kind of like yeah. dreamy, lazy, like fantasy movie that Cameron Crowe is trying to make. Yeah. Where he just wants to hug you as an audience member, but you can't even see where the arms are. So you can't even position yourself in right. between his arms because you're so busy being like, wait a second. Kirsten Dunst has a boyfriend? Where did that come from? Yeah. Again. Kirsten Dunst, Dunst, uh, Claire, is a uh, extremely, like, you are bipolar. You are having a manic episode. Like, there is is some chemical imbalance in your brain. Uh, Like, flight attendant who is, like, pathologically cheerful. Yeah. She is the kind of character that they have made sexist comedies about, where it's like, what if this, like, totally awful woman just wouldn't leave you alone? Yeah. uh, There's, like, a Sandra Bullock movie where she's chasing Bradley Cooper. I think it's something about Steve or whatever. There's a a movie with Lauren Lapkus called The Wrong Missy where she's like, oh, she's the girlfriend from hell and she won't leave him alone. Mm -hmm. Like, they are... It's like a sexist stereotype of, like, crazy bitches. Am I right? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Except in this case... Case, it's like oh isn't she sweet and i'm like this is a nightmare person i yeah i think um nathan raven when he's you know talking about initially who you know who is this trope the, of the manic pixie dream girl he talks about uh, a woman who demands your love and that is absolutely claire i mean she is there was a a, a bit of a trend on youtube for a while of editing movie trailers to make the movie seem like it's a completely different genre sure the the heartwarming family film shining yeah exactly exactly um you could so easily make a 90s suspense fatal attraction type trailer of elizabeth town it wouldn't be hard at all there's specifically a point where she tells him that she's flying to hawaii for vacation yeah and i guess in the last minute she decides rather than go on this vacation she has planned she's going to stalk this guy yeah and she's stalking him through this hotel lobby and she pops a balloon near him to sort of indicate hi i'm talking to you on the phone but i'm also in the same room as you uh-huh. and the way orlando bloom turns around it is the slow like dawning realization that like oh my god pennywise the clown is right behind us <laughs> yes, exactly <laughs> the look on his face is like sort of tear but then he like goes oh yeah. it's claire or even or even the the gesture that she does over and over where she's sort of holding an invisible camera and <laughs> taking a shot um she only does that to him and it's never commented on or explained i don't think she does it too many times that like other people can notice and it's very creepy yeah um it's, it's a little bit like i got my eye on you yeah yeah exactly exactly or, or, or like yeah like 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 your soul is mine kind so of thing. so with this energy that the the role is written as and also kirsten dunst i think does a bad job with the, the terribly written role um like the sort of like hour into the movie 80 minutes into the movie you learn that she is in fact dating someone and has a boyfriend? Sort of. He's a bad boyfriend that is never shown on screen. He's he's a yeah, and then there's even a moment where Drew asks her is Ben even real and she just starts laughing and doesn't give him an answer. Do you think that there's like a possibility that why would she make that up? I think that she might be making it up to seem unattainable. Or to seem, or as a as like a way, a, it's another manipulative masterstroke. I think I think that might be it. It's funny because she, this character, shares so much in common with Natalie Portman's character in Garden State, and the thing that is supposed to make Natalie Portman in Garden State 
charming is that she's a pathological liar. And that's supposed to be like, oh, she's so twee and adorable because she just lies to my face constantly. Um, so I think it might be it might be that she's trying to, you know, seem like she's unavailable to him or it might it might be a way of her trying to protect herself because she's she's afraid of heartbreak but then she's not because she's she's pursuing him so ardently but then she she says oh you and I were the substitute people and all of a sudden she doesn't think that that she's good enough for him or or she she just feels hurt by something i mean i mean for a movie that is supposed to be so like warm and and empathetic and emotional there's there's no through line to Claire's emotions. This is this is where an editor steps in and goes, "You you need to rewrite Claire." You know yeah, what I mean? This is yeah. where Cameron Crowe's first instincts is like, "You have written Claire in terms of the narrative purpose that she needs to serve. Now you need to go back and do a draft where she becomes a human being." I did read that in the original, it was like the original script or the original cut of the film. You find out at the end of the movie that Ben is exists and he is Claire's brother. Uh, so when she's saying things like, like, oh, Ben, I love him so much and he's so complicated. So this literally is a re-edited trailer to make it look like a different kind of movie. <laughs> Except the one who did it was Cameron Crowe and he released it in theaters. Yeah. And he, I, I think. I th- <laughs> like she's literally a person acting with one motivation re-edited to seem like they're acting from a different motivation. Basically. Yeah. He also took out something that would give Claire any kind of groundedness because something uh, another part of the manic pixie dream girl trope and why it is so noxious is that it is a character who a character whose sole existence in the movie is to be quirky to allow the protagonist to have some kind of emotional catharsis or realization or fall in love like they they literally only exist to make the protagonist a better person and that is pretty much what claire is i mean watching the movie a second time around i tried very carefully to pay attention to what she was saying to see do we get any sense of who this woman is we know we know she's a flight attendant we know she has an apartment in nashville or near nashville and i think that's all we learn about her so even if it did kind of end up with like oh surprise ending ben's my brother then she would actually have something to tie her to the real world um after the movie came out maybe a year or two um someone who was a fan of roger ebert wrote in to Roger Ebert's show with this whole letter about Elizabeth Town laying out um, the gentleman's name was Todd Zimmerman. This was in 2006. So the year after Elizabeth Town came out um, and Todd wrote this whole long detailed letter to Roger Ebert, which uh, mirrors Elizabeth Town in its logic and structure um which is why we will not be reading it in its entirety (laughs) no no but what todd says is i see this as an irreverent falling angel story it only makes sense if claire is a discontent angelic being whose job it is to come down and get people back on the path road to god who's that what's the name of the angel in it's a wonderful life 
Clarence. Ooh. Right? Ooh. Right? You know, I don't even think he mentions that here. <laughs> this is a law letter. This is a very law letter. Didn't pick up on the uh, Frank Capra there, which is no. certainly Frank Capra, an influence on yes, uh, it, Cameron Crowe. It is very Capra-esque. Um, but I can see why Todd would make that connection because... Claire is an unearthly being. She has nothing connecting her to the real world. And her only purpose in this film is to latch on to Drew and Drew's problems and support Drew and solve every single problem she can for him. She has access to resources that make no sense. She has access to time that makes no sense. She has access to knowing where Drew is that make no sense. It's a pretty bonkers way of looking at this movie but it does have its logic (laughs) sure sure even if it's not the literal plot of the film it certainly expresses a truth about the film and how it operates yeah absolutely even down to the fact that the sort of like part of the romantic comedy where they're supposed to sleep with each other for the first time you hear over adr uh orlando bloom saying something like but we only kissed. We didn't have sex. Yeah. So it's like, and she wakes up, she's still wearing her clothes and they're, they're like, they, right. they kissed and went to bed together. And that is because Cameron Crowe, uh, somewhat unwisely staged the night before scene with her being really drunk. And that's when they start to have a that's catharsis. Right. So that's Cameron right. Crowe sort of, I, it seems like, it seems like he wrote the movie that they have sex. And then someone was like, that's not how consent, even in 2005, that's not how consent works. And he was like, <laughs> Drew even says this line to her where he says, as good as you look tonight, you're safe with me, which yeah, is yeah. so creepy, that dude. You hear anything like that in a, in a movie, you, it's like, it's either the character had the instinct to do something bad and then decided against it and decided yeah. he deserved brownie points for making that decision. So yeah. he says it out loud or the screenwriter thinks that this is something that goes above and beyond and proves that he's a good person. I think, yeah, I think that's basically what it is because it's definitely one of those scenes where it's like, she's drunk and she confesses her feelings to him. Not like you even need to confess them because you are stalking this man. And then he's, and then he sort of, um, has has the reaction of you know oh I think you're drunk you need to eat something you need to lie down sort of like oh we just and again and again I'm such a no one on screen when he says we only kid I don't know if it's like supposed to be voiceover or what but there mm-hmm. is like literally a scene where Drew is like tells basically tells the audience yeah. we didn't have sex I know we're waking up in bed and I'm naked in bed don't worry about it we did have sex <laughs> and it's like well maybe you didn't have sex because she's an angel and has no genitals maybe <laughs> you that's know? why you know, yeah. in the in the realm of the film, there we do not prove that she has a belly button or anything like that. <laughs> that would prove that she was born of of human woman, right? Right. <laughs> or we, whatever the line from Macbeth is. <laughs> Although, if we are going by Kevin Smith dogma angel rules, she does drink alcohol, which angels can't do. Oh, of course. Um. We, and we always on ninety six screws. We always make a point of going by Kevin Smith dogma angel rules. <laughs> That was that was like bullet point number one when we sat down to talk about, okay, what's this podcast going to be? You want to talk about a movie where a filmmaker just kept saying yes to himself. You should rewatch Dogma sometime. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> okay. So I talked about how on a fundamental level, it's a, like an emotionally irrational film because mm-hmm. you just can't figure out where anyone stands at any given point mm-hmm. unless you like see it a second time and take notes the way that we fucking did. Right. Um, It also, there's another basic storytelling element here Mm -hmm. that works in theory, but does not work at all in the movie itself, which is there is a ticking clock Cameron Crowe has set. 
which is right now Drew exists in this like comfortable, safe bubble of no one knows that he's a failure who fucking ruined his career. Right. He he not only lost the company a billion dollars, he gave an interview to a magazine where he takes full credit for that mm-hmm. failure. And it's like he they got he asked the author of the magazine when's this coming out in a week so he knows he has seven days where mm-hmm. everyone's congratulating him on being a big shot at uh, basically the equivalent of nike right um and he knows that he's a failure but no one else does and that's like another little dynamic that doesn't really get played very much but right. it especially doesn't make sense in this movie because the failure has already happened the shoes have already been recalled everyone who works at that company already knows that he made a massive fuck up when he mm-hmm. when he entered the very first thing we see is him sort of entering this uh, the, the building of this company and him just telling every single person I'm fine like cuz cuz yeah. everyone looks at him and his knee jerk no reaction No one asks is, him if he's fine but right. he feels the need to tell he's everyone the, I'm fine Well he was just contemplating suicide so he just starts telling everyone that he's not contemplating suicide everyone I he guess. runs into he's just like I'm not going to kill myself I'm not going to kill myself I have an exercise bike at home that would be real nice but you don't need to know that you're going to know <laughs> don't worry about it I'm 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 taking this failure so gracefully At some point Alec Baldwin says the line that his his shoe is meeting a growing international roar of laughter and rejection Right. which means that he has very very publicly failed. There's no version of this right. that is private at all. Now, granted, Kentucky seems to be a magical place where anything that happens uh, west of the Mississippi is like news hasn't gotten back there. And they right. don't know the difference between the Oregon and California territories, which right. is why they keep calling, saying he's from oh, California. Oh, they're such simple folk. Oh, they don't need all that <laughs> fancy uh, book learning of geography. But at any rate, like that central premise of you don't understand. I'm a failure. I ruined everything. This is like this secret I've been harboring inside and it's going to change the way everyone looks at me. That's not the reality of that is set up in the first 10 minutes of the movie. So everyone's congratulating him on being a success. And mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, but all the shoes have been recalled. It would be, it would be news. Like it was this big rollout. They spent a yeah. billion dollars making and promoting these shoes yeah. and they're already being recalled. The very first shot of the movie is not of Drew at all. It's of the shoes being recalled. Right. So everyone would already know this. Right. But there's like... It, again, it's like so... And they know about this shoe. When he drives into town, there's a kid who's holding a sign with the spasmodic, which is a... a that's a, that's name. a name for a shoe, I right. guess. Um, and, and is like jumping up and down and cheering. And, and people people say, you know, oh, Drew and his and his success. Um, the, yeah, that was that was another part where, uh, again, the, the logic just made no sense to me, where it's, it's the shoe, this new shoe that captures magic and has just been rolled out, but it's being automatically recalled. If it's being recalled so fast, why didn't this company that's basically nike put more into the r&d phase is there is there somewhere in the lost 40 minutes of this movie is there like oh the movie originally yes. opened with a scene that's yes, like there the is. jerk where it's like this is giving everyone making everyone cross-eyed <laughs> or there's like you know what i mean you know he invents the <laughs> oh, the optigrip oh he invents the optigrip oh, and he and then it causes everyone to be cross-eyed and why would you bring up the absolute best example of this kind of of plot 
and make me even angrier to Elizabeth Town. <laughs> because the magic of this podcast is we take things that are beneath consideration and we consider them deeply and make the best possible points. So you know what, what I'm I saying consider, is what I want to consider is everyone rolling ankles on these stingray shoes, and like and so there's a that's why there's a national because recall. that's something that would come up in like the testing phase. Yes, it, it makes that's why it makes no sense to me. So so. And apparently this was like another like ending or part of the ending that got cut out. The original idea was that when you step in the shoe, it makes a whistling noise. Again, something you would learn before you make a billion dollars worth of shoes and roll them out for sale. Yeah. But people end up liking it. And the shoe is like super popular because it's like, it's like the the shoes make the whistling noise and people actually love it. Fuck off. (laughs) That's worse. I'm glad they cut. With a little song in your shoe. Yeah, that's what people want out of their fucking shoes. Just buy a pair of spasmodics and all day a cheery little whistle is your reward. Yeah. Um, But at least that was an explanation. At least that wasn't just this sort of like nebulous bad thing that makes you the laughing stock. So so it's like one of those things where it's like, is this a movie about a romance? Absolutely not. Is this a movie about grief? Eh, not really. Is this a movie about overcoming failure? Nope. Because none of those things make any internal sense. Not right. not not they don't make sense in the way our world operates, but in the actual logic of you know, A, therefore B, therefore C, right. telling a story. The things that the audience would naturally want to know. None of it makes sense. No, no, none of none of your questions will be answered by watching Elizabeth Town. Not the first time, not the second time, not the third time, not by reading the Wikipedia article. Um, now that said, are there are there moments where this being someone who is a filmmaker, this isn't an anonymously directed movie, like you said, it looks good. Yeah, and it is it is someone who is trying very hard. Are there good moments? In this movie? Yeah. I think Alec Baldwin is very funny at the beginning of the movie. Oh, yeah. I mean, ultra wealthy CEO. I mean, yeah, you get Alec Baldwin for sure. I laughed extremely hard. Um, I did not laugh at the the whimsical suicide attempt, which in my mind is a callback to uh, Sabrina, the Billy Wilder movie where Audrey Hepburn tries to kill herself and she doesn't like, whoa, I'm the whimsical way, where she like... Uh, runs a car in a, gra- a gr- garage with a closed uh-huh. garage door, but she keeps like tripping over the seats because I'm Audrey Hepburn and I, you, I'm so oh, wacky. I and, I'm so wacky and cute. At least that gives it some context because uh, it's a touchstone. I don't necessarily mean the scene plays the same way, but it is. Yeah, at least that does give some sort of connection to that scene because it is in such poor taste. Yeah, I, I think what I was often struggling with with this movie was. I didn't know when the jokes were and I didn't know if Drew going home and um, and uh, turning his exercise bike into a stab yourself in the chest machine was supposed to be funny or not because it the way that it's filmed it just seems very grim and, and the music is is very bleak, if I remember correctly. And it's I, very dark and moody. Now, I don't know this for a fact because I'm not super familiar with this artist, but I have read that one of the especially tasteless things about that scene is that it's specifically Elliot Smith, Smith who yeah. died from stab from stabbing himself. Like like a couple years before, yeah. A couple years before this movie yeah. came out. Yeah. Play, his music playing over him trying to stab himself. Oh, was it an Elliot Smith song? I, that's that is my understanding. Woof. Um, I it could I could be incorrect there. Um, I it's like a thing I read on the internet. I'm not an Elliot Smith fan, so I don't know for sure. But at any rate, 
I will say, as someone who struggles uh, with uh, mental health and mm-hmm. who has lived with uh, suicidal ideation since the age of 17, that was very funny. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, the the trying to make the suicide machine, and then the little duct tape knife goes, and, like, okay. droops over. I was like, <laughs> that's some good, that's some, like, Harold and Maude shit. I like that. Okay, I, okay. Th- that moment was good, where where you just you just see this duct tape knife, and it, it just sort of droops a little bit. Um, that was pretty good. Also, there's a certain verve uh, and a little a little pep in Orlando Bloom's step as he's tossing everything he owns out into a dumpster that I thought was very funny, like enthusiastically embracing his own demise. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I found massively preferable to if that scene was like played super dreary. Um, uh, but the thing I was going to say is I laughed extremely hard when all of the guys found all of his like luxury brands and like uh-huh. and high end items in the dumpster and they're like dumpster picking and they start doing a little dosy. Oh yeah. Yeah. I did like that. I did like that moment. That, I that, was that very... is like a moment of like black humor. That is like, you're about to kill yourself and you killing yourself is the best thing that happened to this guy. Maybe all year. Yeah. They're going to be telling stories about finding <laughs> this shit. They don't understand the context, but ultimately you killing yourself is like the greatest thing that happened to these dudes and they're going to be like telling that story in bars for years to come i love that that was a that was a pretty good moment i thought paul schneider was very funny in this movie as he's pretty the, good as the i i hate the way the character is written he oh is, absolutely he yeah, is yeah. Good. he he's he's given a very difficult task yes. uh he is this um sort of former uh, this former rock drummer who just dreams about his glory days with his band, and he has a, a son, like like a uh, like a five year old, six year old, who he just wants to be his son's buddy, and he can't control him. And uh, his own father is telling him, like, "Oh, you can't be friends with your son." And there there just seems to be a lot there with like he wants to live his life one way, and he wants to be the rock star, and his dad, you know, his dad feels disappointed in him. But it's really just sort of the, the kind of thing you have to put together in your own mind while watching this movie because the movie itself certainly doesn't dig into this. No, and also there's no payoff for that storyline. No, there no, there isn't. It's not he even never, something... He never grows to learn anything. He doesn't even solve the problems himself. I mean, he has this, this rambunctious kid who he refuses to give any kind of structure or discipline and everyone else is really annoyed by this child and and the kids even doing things that that are unsafe for himself and uh drew steps in to save the day because claire tells him about this videotape that works magic on loud uh, now children did claire use her powers to shape and uh alter reality to will this tape into existence because it sure as hell doesn't seem like something that would exist in any other format other than an angel i think if claire is an angel that rusty is god the father right i'll go a step further even if claire isn't an angel rusty is god the father i think rusty's listening to learn part eight is a new testament is, for a, a new age. It yes, that, that's a good way to put it. I saw this scene where they put on this video to make the kids quiet down. Rusty's learning to listen, part eight, and I watched the scene unhinged. And I rewound the DVD. Well, you don't rewind a DVD, but I'm ancient. I brought the DVD back to the beginning of the scene and I watched it again because I couldn't believe what I had just seen. And I think I did it again on the second watch of the movie. The movie, okay. So the movie stopped dead 
uh, the the entire house because it's sort of a family reunion. Everyone coming back for this memorial. It's it's a classic family reunion scene. All of the little kids are together and they're just all screaming at the top of their lungs and running around and like knocking over shit and stuff like that. Yeah. And he goes, "Wait, everybody, we have something for you." And they put on this video. Um, I have to say, uh, I I think, I think the best way I can describe the vibe of this video is that when I was scrolling through reviews of Elizabethtown on Letterboxd, I was utterly shocked and deflated to find that no one had written a review that was just Rusty Step on Me or Rusty is Zaddy or nothing like that because you have this... He's, he's got gentle Dom vibes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You didn't like, see the face Reg made, but I did. <laughs> that was a treat for me. Maybe, maybe, maybe not a hundred percent the kind of uh, vibes you want in something you're going to show a small child. No, it's not sexual. It's just his energy is. If I blow this house up, will you promise to behave and mind your mommy and daddy? Is anyway it, it's, it's it is extended unblinking eye contact with the camera as he addresses the children and rusty's promise to to these children is that the, the children at home watching his video is that he is a contractor and he has a house that uh is no longer able to be used anymore because of termites and he's gonna blow up the house but only if you promise to be good and obey your mommy and daddy and then there's a very long uncomfortable silence while rusty stares at you and all of the children in the movie are mesmerized by this and finally rusty blows up the house and then jesse's kid is chill and fine and he doesn't have any more kind of behavioral issues and jesse didn't need to lift a finger if if rusty isn't god the father then he's god the machine because it's a day's ex machina for that yes (laughs) (laughs) for that subplot um but no yes paul schneider uh paul schneider paul paul schneider yeah paul schneider has a good he he is able to sell the dopiness of the of the character in a way that no one else who has a dopey written character can um he has some really cringy lines but he also has just sort of like a laid-back vibe that you go okay yeah that guy would say that he he has yeah there's there's so many lines in this movie that just left me baffled and and he has one that people kind of kind of toss around a lot in reviews which is this loss will be met with a hurricane of love but when he says it he does bring this like goofy gentle sincerity to it you probably went to college and there was a guy in your dorm who would say some shit like that yeah and that is who he is playing and yeah, and I and I think he he pulls it off very well. Um, so he he was definitely one of the brighter points of the movie for me. Um, I also like at the end where or, or not. I also like the scene that he has at Mitch's memorial service where he gets his band back together uh, and they play Freebird in honor of Mitch and. Again, with with people just having time and resources that wouldn't possibly exist over the the four day span that this movie takes place in, um, 
they have a, a giant like paper mache bird uh, that, you know, because it's, this is a quirky rom-com, the, the stage lights set it on fire and there's this flaming paper mache bird flying out of, over the audience and people are freaking out and the sprinklers are going off and Paul Schneider is rocking out with the rest of his band who's played, who are played by the members of My Morning Jacket uh, and they they rock out to Free Bird while Utter Chaos is going on. I kind of like that scene. That scene, I, I wouldn't say I like that scene. I will say I like the payoff of Claire going to the exit and then being a flight attendant, yes. help, like directing people to yeah. the exit. Yeah. That shit was, that is like, again, one of those like, okay, this is this is a screenplay from someone who has written good comedies as well. Yeah. You know, yeah, like you don't get a, you don't get a lot of good comedy in this movie, but like sometimes it pops up and, and that was like the one moment of Claire where I'm like, okay, I see the potential of this character. That's very funny that she's like, Oh, I'm the helper. I'm going to, yeah. When this uh, hotel ballroom is on fire, I'm going to sort of like gesture at the exit. Yeah. I, I have, I have the skills. This is what I've been training for. Um, <laughs> um, this, by the way, this is the same year that The Devil's Rejects came out, and that is a road trip movie that ends with Freebird, um, but it's like a Bonnie and Clyde situation where they go against a police roadblock and they all get blown away by, oh, really? by to cops Freebird? to Freebird. And it's like one of those things where it's just like, well, you got outdone by Rob Zombie, Cameron yeah. Crowe. <laughs> just thinking about how this is a movie that tries so hard to be a mid-aughts, uh, precious hipster artifact and just doesn't do it for me like at all um even as someone who is like 100 percent the target audience mm -hmm. for this movie and who went into this movie going okay let's try to meet it halfway yeah like yeah. it should be said like we both were yeah. like wouldn't this be a more interesting episode if we found this movie to be like worthwhile I in some way I, I wanted to like it yeah. i i i have a, a great fondness for almost famous i have a great fondness for say anything i really wanted to like this movie yeah um i also have a great fondness for uh movies about people returning to their hometown and sort of the the like weird existential issues that come up with that as someone who experiences that myself so i i really did want to get something out of this movie but just for me learning that uh my morning jacket was the the band that shows up in this movie um so like i said this was definitely the the time where i was you know at my trendiest and uh i went to college um pretty close to new york city so i would go to you know hipster bands playing concerts in the city and my best friend and i at this time were really into m ward uh, sure. He, who who went on to have like a, like a duo with uh, Zoe Deschanel, uh, but we liked him when he was cool, um, <laughs> and, and we we saw him open for what was our favorite band at the time, Rilo Kylie, and we were just blown away by this guy M Ward. I mean, it was just like like him and a guitar, and we were like, oh my god, we have to see this guy more. So whenever he was playing a show and we were able, we would we would go see him and. Um, he was opening for my for my morning jacket and like we get to the show and the opener opener is Dr. Dog. Great band. Oh, yeah. Um, then M. Ward comes on, does his set. Fantastic. Beautiful. Um, and then my morning jacket. And we were like, yeah, we've heard of my morning jacket. Cool. We're here for the show. And we're going to and they were the most boring. We left like four songs in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were they were so dull. They're they're very boring. Like <laughs> I, I will say the thing I appreciate about my morning jacket is like truth and advertising. If you if you are the most boring band in the world, then it's like, thank you for naming yourself the most most boring band name in the world. Yeah, there can be nothing less intense than my morning jacket. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it was, it was... They suck. 
but they are from Kentucky. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they they are from Kentucky, and they they do a decent free bird, I have to say. Sure, like, like um, you know, technically impeccable. Yeah, um, they they were part of, they were part of that thing where I was like, I think rock and roll is dead because all these soft spoken motherfuckers with beards, like yeah. the band of horses and my morning jackets of the world, were yeah. like, oh god, I I guess I need to only listen to rap because yeah. this is no longer viable. Yep, yep, it was it was two thousand four, <laughs> and that's what we had for entertainment <laughs> so we have Freebird and this arts and crafts project on fire yeah to close out the memorial scene but there is another aspect of the memorial that i think we have to talk about and that is susan sarandon yes. in this movie yeah so she plays drew's mother holly she is the woman who came in from california and seduced uh, this uh, shining citizen of Elizabethtown away to the West Coast, and the town has not forgiven her. And she's returning for the first time in 20-plus years, um, both to mourn her husband and to confront these people who've held a grudge against her all that time. She starts out in this scene giving a speech at the podium that is set up the way that you would expect a woman who's recently lost her husband to behave at his memorial service. And of course, because it's a movie, it does get a bit confrontational and it does get a bit like, I know what you people think about me and all this kind of stuff. And then she steps away from the podium and her speech turns into a stand-up routine. So it should be said, backing up, uh, Susan Sarandon's role this whole movie is that the death of her husband has sent her into a manic episode. She is basically in the first steps of the, of a lifestyle that Kirsten Dunst clearly embraced. Right. right. <laughs> um, she decides that rather than let this be an end of something, it's going to be a beginning and she's going to become a whole new person. She's going to learn a whole bunch of new things. She's going to take all these classes. She's going to take tap dance mm-hmm. classes. She's going to take stand-up classes. She's going to learn how to cook. She says she's going to learn how to laugh, which I'm assuming that's what she means by I'm going to take a stand-up class. Yeah, she definitely looks like a woman who already had laughed at some point in the past. Um, <laughs> Um, but I, I, the reason it's worth bringing that up, uh, none of those scenes are particularly important to the movie, but they are where Judy Greer lives because Judy yes. Greer exists in every scene Susan Sarandon exists and she exists to be a sounding board for Susan Sarandon. Yes. Um, and Judy Greer is also there and she gets like six lines and like three of them are funny. So cool. All right. So back to Susan Sarandon's uh, <laughs> memorial uh, performance. Yeah. So... Um, her eulogy speech turns into a stand-up routine, uh, which everyone, everyone except Judy Greer, the reaction shots from Judy Greer, she looks genuinely concerned for her mother's well-being. Everyone else is responding like it's a night at the Yuck Yuck Hut. Well, this specifically exists in Marvelous Miss Maisel rules where the setups get big laughs and then the punchlines get huge laughs. But it's like every single thing anyone says gets a laugh because it's like this fantasy version of stand-up comedy where just the fact that someone is on stage talking about themselves is inherently amazing and funny. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like, whoa, she stepped away from the podium. She's holding the mic in her hand. Uh, You know, this is definitely appropriate for... uh, appropriate for us to laugh now at this memorial service Uh, i I don't think it's inappropriate to laugh at a memorial service i don't i i don't think it's inappropriate to laugh at a memorial service i think 
it's inappropriate to milk as many laughs as she does I, at a memorial service. I, I will I will say I, I unless I, it's like you're at fucking like Patton Oswalt's <laughs> memorial service. Well, no, you know? I would I would say not that I want Patton Oswalt to die. I will say that it doesn't seem like Mitch was a soul in person. It seems like Mitch was a joyful person yeah. who all of his family was full of joy. And when they are all getting together, when Drew first arrives, it is just a big party where everyone's laughing and, and, ch- and chatting and having a good time. And I think even doing jokes in a memorial service is like a perfectly acceptable way to remember someone. What it is not a good way to do is to re-endear yourself to people who think that you are like this craven okay, hussy yeah. who stole away their yeah. prized boy. Especially because she's not... She's not getting the laughs about like, oh, remember when Mitch did this or remember right. no, that she's crucial. talking about like her own experience and like, OK, yeah, you, you're the widow. You're the one who's like one of the like hardest hit by this loss. So, yeah, get get the community around you to support you. But it, it just becomes it isn't about like I'm her... grieving the way you're grieving and don't we relate to each other no, in that she's, way. She's she doesn't testing seem out like her she's, tight five. She like, doesn't seem like she's grieving at all. No, no, she which doesn't. Which is like, because we've seen the movie, we go, well, she's having like a manic episode. This is, her grief is clearly processing into like weird directions where she thinks yeah. she can like f- get under the hood of her car and fix it and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah, which you also see re- reflected in Drew because um, he just has these moments where he's like, I haven't cried yet. And also he's not sleeping right. through the entire movie. He keeps either either Kirsten Dunst is keeping him awake or Kirsten Dunst is keeping him awake. Which I think is the Geneva Convention has strictly forbid yes. some of the things Kirsten Dunst does to Orlando Bloom in this after, movie. After the night they spend together, she has this like melancholic moment where she wants him to wake up and tell her not to go, but he's asleep and she can't get him to wake up. Yeah, because you've kept him awake for 72 hours. <laughs> This is like he's a biological need, lady. Get over it. <laughs> and, and she's and she yeah she's and she is going with breakfast at Tiffany's. I think playing on the TV behind her. She is going like full Audrey Hepburn. Like ooh, I dropped this. Yeah, ooh, like yeah. Oh, aren't I cute and adorable? And then yeah. like it's not working or whatever. But anyway, like so this uh, this stand up routine, which it's again you you talked about certain parts of this movie it's hard to figure out where the jokes are yeah uh it apparently the jokes are when she says the word boner because yes. she says the word boner 17 times we're talking about her neighbor sexually harassing her and it's that it's that classic thing that like i remember at a certain point i stopped watching these kinds of like pg-13 adam sandler comedies or whatever because they were just not for me um and also like sort of the r-rated comedy came back in a way once I was also the age for it. But like there was a time period where there were like, there was this concept of the like mainstream Hollywood comedy that was like PG 13 smutty. Yeah. And they would have like these things they would say that were like, not actually based in how adults think about anything and also not actually funny, but they were like a PG 13 version of smutty. Like so many of the jokes in something like Austin powers or, or many Adam Sandler movies are just like, it, they they have the weirdest creepiest vibe to me because they are presented as if they are like something shocking and like mm-hmm. you get a shock laugh from it but it's pg-13 smutty and it's right. like it, it's just very unnerving to me and the way that she goes boner and everyone goes <gasps> yeah and like cover their mouth like oh, yeah. she said boner and it's like i'll say it again boner oh my god this is we're gonna never gonna stop talking about the time she yeah. said boner seven times like yeah that is like pg-13 smutty to me also, I I have to wonder when is the last time you saw a scene where someone said something like vulgar in front of a traditional tight laced person who was then scandalized, and that in itself was inherently funny. I'm sure it's happened, but I can't I can't recall <laughs> at the moment. I, I there might be a scene like that in Babylon. Because uh. I was thinking about um, 
shampoo, which I saw recently, is that shampoo is very much a product of its time. Yeah. It's, it's time being the, the late 60s, early 70s. They are, they are they are enjoying the new freedoms. Yeah. And yeah. And Nixon's can... being elected. And it's like this whole thing. But um, <laughs> but there's a scene where Julie Christie is drunk and she keeps talking about blowjobs. And I guess it's just supposed to be funny because she's saying because she's Julie Christie and she's saying blowjobs and she's saying it in front of these like rich conservative men yeah. at the election party where they're all rooting for Nixon. And it's just one of those moments where, well, I I guess other people might have found this funny at some point, but it doesn't work. And it's just sort of strange. It's why, and it's why, uncomfortable. Shock, it's why shock humor never ages well or whatever. Yeah. And it's a specifically why a lot of the comedy of the 70s, uh, Hollywood comedies of the 70s don't age well, mm -hmm. is because they were like sort of pushing the envelope of what these new freedoms mean and what we can do with them. Yeah. And it's like you go back to Animal House and you're like, this isn't. Much of anything, really. Yeah, it's just um, like, oh, naked ladies, and we can say racial slurs. Like, oh, cool, 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 cool. Speaking of racial slurs, <laughs> there was a thing I brought up before we started recording. I uh -huh. said there's something about Elizabethtown that is so fucking funny to me uh -huh. that I wonder which of. I'm sure we both observed it, but I wonder which of us is going to say it first. And I'm just going to go ahead and say it for a movie that part of the big cathartic emotional climax is a pilgrimage to the hotel where Martin Luther King right? Jr. was shot. Um, the mythical uh, eponymous town in which all magical good things happen and like it is a place where your soul gets renewed and you meet the most wonderful, honest people you've ever met in your life. The very first shot we see inside of Elizabethtown, there's a lawn jockey on someone's is front Is it really? Lawn. There is a big red-lipped fucking Oof. lawn Oof. jockey. And it's like... Paula Deen 2005, not Paula Deen now, didn't know all of the things Oh, yeah, that's right. Paula Deen is literally in this movie. She she plays Drew's aunt. <laughs> but it's like, you get, within like two minutes of each other, you get fucking lawn jockey-ass lawn jockey. Not one of the like amended, like, okay, we deracialized the, the facial oh, features and stuff God. like that. There's a lawn jockey-ass lawn jockey in front of all those Norman Rockwell kids that. running in the front yard and like wow. waving at him. Ho fucking hysterical to me. Um, and then, yeah, and then it is, and then the Paula Deen thing is like, that ties into a different thing because again, uh, Paula Deen, all of her controversial, uh, racial bullshit, like right. the reveal that she was like a fucking horrible person right. did not yet happen in 2005, but she is an indicator of something that Cameron Crowe is very interested in that he has never actually done well, mm -hmm. which is he really likes casting non-actors and he has this feeling of like, Anyone can be interesting if you put them in front yeah. of a camera and you imbue them. And so like Paula Deen and My Morning Jacket or like you look at the movie Singles, the follow up to say anything. Uh -huh. He like a lot of uh, the Seattle grunge scene, like have little like tiny supporting roles. Eddie Vedder has a couple lines. Oh, He's a character in that, that movie. Okay. Uh, Almost Famous is full of comedians who had never acted before, but they had like a certain 70s look. And mm -hmm. it's like, oh, well, we're going to cast a bunch of people who don't have acting experience. But what they do have is a certain quality that. You know, mm -hmm. and it's and it's just one of those things where it's like it never works. So I just, I I, there, I bring up the thing one because it's just like fucking hysterical. And I've never seen anyone mention this goddamn lawn jockey in this. It like right. literally like and and the whole town is white by the way. Yeah, whole town is white. Uh, not not a single person of color to be seen in Elizabethtown. 
which is sort of presented as unquestionably like good mm-hmm. <laughs> and like mm-hmm. this is this is the small town goodness you need it's like that yeah. classic like he he came from the vulgar big city where once he had a failure everyone turned their backs on him but these people would never turn their backs on him because right. they don't care about that sort of thing they just care about what good a person you are and also they really uh, resent the war of northern aggression I suppose <laughs> Kentucky border state not actually part of the confederacy anyway uh, <laughs> um, uh, but I bring that to talk about a more larger point, which is hysterical that that's how Elizabethtown is first presented. And then we go to the to that Memphis balcony. But also, this is like a fundamentally naive vision of America mm-hmm. that Cameron Crowe has. And it's like in an era, 2005 is like we are neck deep in the Bush years. We are neck deep in Iraq war bullshit. Uh-huh. Like it is like fundamentally him choosing to ignore the America that's actually happening around him mm-hmm. and present a false version of it. Right. And he does such a bad job that he couldn't get different B-roll footage that didn't have the fucking lawn <laughs> jockey in the front yard. And it just shows like how little thought he puts into his construction of like the moral, the morality of America. So I think with this movie, this is Cameron Crowe, as I said before, trying to do his version of like a quirky indie rom-com dramedy he's trying to be a he's trying to do a Noah Baumbach he's trying to do a Wes Anderson Mm -hmm. but with you know this town this sort of like um this like untethered uh you know uh charming old town uh you know where you don't really have a a firm sense of logic or follow through with anything that's happening and especially kind of going back to the memorial scene where Susan Sarandon ends up after her comedy set doing this like awkward um very childlike tap dance to Moon River and they even they even put the lights down and put a spotlight on her so she can tap dance at her own husband's memorial that's the moment when I said Oh my God, he ended up as David Lynch. (laughs) Again, I think there is a, there's a potential world in which that is moving. Yeah. I I think there's a potential world where it's like, I think the idea that Cameron Crowe's trying to get across is like, this is a very rudimentary, very clumsy, very childlike tap dance, but it is sincere and it is an out, it is an outcropping of her desire to not, be weighted down with his death but instead instead to be like lifted up and to move on and stuff and that's the philosophy about that's in this movie time and time again that bugs the shit out of me i mean you have claire absolutely okay so you have claire who says that she is in love with drew and she is there to support him and be there for him and she blows off a trip to hawaii to spend all of her time um you know sourcing fucking like my first bdsm videos and (laughs) doing arts and crafts projects for this sad sack motherfucker and ostensibly because she loves him but then when he finally opens up to her and tells her why he's so upset i mean because because his father dying suddenly is not enough of a reason for him to be upset and not able to like open himself up to a romance that's not enough so finally he tells her about the shoe thing and and he basically tells her you know uh that that he lost almost a billion dollars for this company that he works for and he lost his job and he's going to be publicly humiliated and she 
staunchly refuses to validate his feelings. She says, oh, is that it? Oh, it's just failure? You know, oh, you have five minutes to wallow in this and then you discard it. Like he... His career's over. He yeah. Put, he put everything into uh, this. This. Is, this wasn't a cynical career. This wasn't like, well, I became a stockbroker because it seemed like a no, way to like th- a lot this, of money. He loves like, fucking shoes. He, he loves shoes. Um, there's a line that Alec Baldwin has where it's like they basically they basically poached him from college and he's been working for this company for his entire adult life. He's He, he says that he hasn't seen his family on birthdays or holidays because he's just at the office working on this shoe. Hundreds of people are losing their jobs at this company because of yeah. how much money it lost from this shoe he's going to be publicly humiliated it's not it's not like he can get a reference letter and bullshit his way into a new job like his career is over like everything that he was trying to do in his 20s is fucked yeah but he's not allowed to be mad about it because he has to like dance waving his arms around because the manic pixie dream girl tells him to yeah um yeah so i i this movie it is a perverted it is like it's learning the wrong lessons from Harold and Maude because mm-hmm. Harold and Maude is an example now there uh, Nathan Raven went on to write an essay about how he regrets uh, invent coining the term Manic Pixie right. Dream Girl once it took on a weight of its own and there's like a lot of reason why Manic Pixie Dream Girl ultimately became like a destructive phrase and it's like you know what sometimes women should be allowed to have a bob haircut and play the ukulele yeah. without being like accused of their trying to like fit in this like fictional stereotype right it's like maybe they just want to have a tote bag with a bird on it and that's fine yeah. it doesn't mean like oh you're some fucking Zoe Deschanel wannabe or whatever right 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 for sure but definitely um like like what the term originally meant and and it's specifically coming out of this movie is i think still a valid criticism which is for this movie yes for this movie yeah for this movie for garden state for for movies like that where i mean or or any other kind of thing where it's like you have a male writer director who writes his quirky dream girl who only exists to be a support for the emotions that society won't let him feel but but so the meaning of this phrase dead on perfect combination of four words to describe Kirsten Dunst in this movie. Um, Later it got kind of expanded to just be like all quirky female leads in rom-coms. And it's like one of those things where it's like, if you watch Annie Hall, Annie Hall is about Annie growing and Alvy not growing. It's not about someone comes in and changes his life. It's about him being too much of an asshole to change. Right. If you look at that became like an early example of like, Oh, this is someone you can look at in like older movies. Who's like, and she's not. If you look at Harold and Maude, Harold is depressed, but like he is also extremely wealthy and he also like has this like life of luxury and he's extremely privileged Mm -hmm. and he meets someone who went through something really horrific by being a survivor of a concentration camp. Mm -hmm. And he realizes that like, he needs to put his own fucking problems into perspective. And like, that's the story of that is like, she doesn't exist to make his life better necessarily. She, I mean, she, I mean, it's like that, that movie is, uh, the the character of Maud is is maybe not as three dimensional as some of these other examples, but right. like but like that does that doesn't fit neatly the way this does. Or and like, like or so even like, like another you... example that, that that comes up a lot because I was just looking into like okay, well, who else is considered a manic pixie dream girl? And another example that people had a lot was bringing up Baby Catherine Hepburn's character. Uh-huh. She she doesn't exist to to like bolster Cary Grant's emotions or to teach him about life. She's there to torture him. Yeah. <laughs> it's a completely different thing. So, so it is, it is a thing where it's like Cameron Crowe is looking at these classics and he is like completely missing the context that makes them work. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, and he is trying to tell too many stories at once. Mm-hmm. And maybe at a certain point, there, this movie was 40 minutes longer and some of those stories made sense. But he, they now exist in a movie where not only do no, none of them make sense individually, but they all work at odds with each other. Yeah. Um, it's a it's a disastrous movie. Yeah, it, it is. I, I really think it comes down to that. Um, there's a there's a scene in this movie where um, where Drew sees his father's body laid in the coffin, and the funeral director um, is you know showing his pride in the work that he did for his friend like the last thing he did for this man that he cared about and drew is like what's the word and he's trying so hard to be polite and eventually he goes i think the word is whimsical and that feels like such a perfect cipher for this movie where you look at it and you look at it and you say i guess it's whimsical but what you're looking at is maybe not light enough in what its actuality is to earn a word like whimsical, but it sure is trying to look that way. If you look at it from a certain perspective. Yes. That is, yeah, that's, that's kind of, uh, I, I sort of brought it up, but like, and honestly, it's like, do you have anything else to say about Judy Greer in Elizabethtown? This is 96 Greer's and yeah, I know. she's kind of just there because Susan Sarandon would seem especially deranged if she didn't have someone to work off of. Yeah. yeah. And you would also, like, you would like want to do a welfare check on her if she didn't have Judy Greer there, like to, yeah. uh, to ground her. And yeah, exactly. that's kind of the only reason Judy Greer exists in this movie. She's also there to, um, to, kind of keep the pressure on drew where it's like okay you promised that you would bring that you would you promised that you would get our father cremated and bring his ashes back to oregon um because that is that is sort of a uh a conflict in the movie where um, his family and friends in Elizabeth town have his burial plot and they want to give him a traditional burial. Um, but Holly, Heather and Drew want him cremated and brought back to Oregon. So that's a conflict in the movie. And you sort of have Heather, Judy Greer there as the voice in the family to balance out the people of Elizabeth town in terms of, you know, who gets say in what happens to Mitch's remains and how they're treated. But yeah, she does as always a fine job. I mean, I mean, you know, she is an a number one crier. Um, you know, <laughs> when, when we are introduced in the movie, she is calling Drew to tell him that their dad died. I love no. watching Judy Greer have an emotional outburst of yeah, any kind. Yeah. She's, uh, she's, I mean, she's very, I was going to say she's very believable, but she also gets some lines that seem very strange. Um, you know, where she just kind of has to work with them the way that every actor in this movie does. Yeah. Uh, like where she says, oh, he loved that silly blue suit okay oh what does that mean but you know it's like well she's not writing it she's just acting in it and sometimes you just have to you know do the best with what you're given i that blue suit thing is so strange to me that i watched this twice Uh in preparation for this podcast both times i went well obviously this ends with orlando bloom wearing the blue suit as he takes the road trip home and then that's not what happens the blue suit gets buried in the in the grave yeah second time i watched it i'm like what was the deal with that blue suit again I guess he must be wearing it later because why say. else would he be carrying around this suit? And why does everyone know about it? Like his his family in Oregon knows uh-huh. about the blue suit. His Mitch really loved Punch Drunk Love. His 
You want to know one thing about Mitch? He loved his home and his family. He loved good old fine Kentucky bourbon. And he liked Paul Thomas Anderson's off-putting dramedy, Punch Drunk Love. We were all mundane workaday people before Mitch came into our lives. Now we're all whimsical and fantastic because he turned us on to Punch Drunk Love. Punch Drunk Love. Emily Mortimer in Punch Drunk Love. Maybe a little bit of a Manic Pixie Dream Girl. I don't know. A little bit. A little bit. Um, that movie operates on different rules, so I'm, I'm not. I'm gonna he- go ahead and say no. But like, it's it's in it's in this it's in the spectrum. At maybe. least at least that is a movie where it is successful in creating a dreamy atmosphere. Absolutely. Um, I think that's the, you know you know there's um there's this movie All That Heaven Allows. It's a Douglas Sirk movie uh, with Rock Hudson, and he's like a manic pixie dream boy. Yeah. But that movie is just just this like Technicolor fever dream of suburban ennui and it works because it's it's just it's so out there yeah it's it's so it's it's such a fairy tale and i think elizabethtown is attempting to be a sort of modern fairy tale but it's just too strange he's not just doesn't work cameron crow wants to comfort the audience too much in order to make something that feels uncanny in a way that like that kind of bombastic melodrama needs to feel like there's something slightly nightmarish about all that heaven allows yeah. because it is like human is relatable human experience, but dialed up to like a freakish in the way that like a David Lynch movie is. Yeah, yeah. I mean like, yeah, Douglas Sirk, David Lynch, there's a, there's a through line there. Yeah. And it's like Cameron Crowe cannot make that kind of movie. No. In fact, he made Vanilla Sky, which is a movie that is like attempting to be a complicated, weird, is this reality kind of a movie. And that movie also kind of feels like a fortune cookie giving you a hug or whatever. Also, I, I haven't seen it, but it it's a remake. Yes. Like, like, can you have more of a blueprint than a remake? It's, I haven't seen the original, so it's hard for me to comment on how much of a blueprint he used it as. But at yeah. any rate, um, I think I feel I feel like we've given Elizabeth Town its due. I, I just have, have one more question before we move on. Go ahead. Do you have a favorite line in Elizabeth Town that is supposed to be deep, but is just laughable nonsense? So... Mitch and Drew do not have a strained relationship. No. They moved away together because Drew was eight. Yes. I think I see where you're going. They all live in the same city. Mm-hmm. He goes back and visits Kentucky from time to time. And he hasn't seen Drew in the past couple of years because he's been working on the shoe or whatever. Mm-hmm. But like there, there's not like a strained, terrible relationship or whatever. Uh, when he is taking his road trip with his father's ashes he goes look at us you with your many almost great projects and then it's and then it's that like uh arrested development cuts to example not found because this movie did not really go into any detail of what what projects yeah wait what was we don't know anything about mitch what his many great almost great projects was he like the the inventor dad from gremlins where he kept almost like we know he went to west point that's all we know about him. he went to west point and he tried to invent the bathroom buddy uh he goes you with your many almost great projects me with my fiasco my god both of us working so hard for what we should have taken this trip years ago um and then he goes the fact that i still want to go home and kill myself has nothing to do with you (laughs) which is which is again like the emotional reality of the movie is like he was in a very dark place 
and meeting Kirsten Dunst especially, but also meeting all of the fine, wonderful people in Elizabeth Town sort of put perspective on his life. So the fact that in like the last five minutes of the movie, while he's going on this road trip, he tells his ash, his father's ashes, by the way, that whole thing I put on hold, definitely still going to kill myself. <laughs> I haven't learned anything. Don't you worry. I'll be seeing you soon if there is a heaven or perhaps if there is a hell. Like, that is such a, and it's like with that, like, it's, you know, it's, it's fucking Cameron Crowe score. So it's like some fucking Tom Petty or whatever is yeah, playing. And he's yeah. like, still going to kill myself yeah, though. Yeah. And he like nudges the urn or whatever the fuck. Like that was, <laughs> why is he trying to kill himself? My... Do you think he tells that to uh, Claire when they, when she meets him at that like Tennessee farmer's market and she like uh, scavenger hunts her way into, oh, yeah, into yeah. his heart? Do you think he's, he gives her a fine, like a finally a big kiss? And then he's like... I just want you to know the fact that I'm going to go home and kill myself has nothing to do with you. <laughs> and she's like, no, it's okay. I'm actually the angel of death. Yeah. So <laughs> that's why I'm here. It's like touched by an angel where the one guy would show up and then it'd be like, oh, no, someone's going to die as the angel of death. We we knew that the discussion of Elizabeth Town would eventually lead to touched by an angel. It's just the way that these <laughs> it podcasts does have that go. that kind of vibe. Yeah, it's a little um, cliche at this point. What I, was your favorite line from this movie? My favorite line from this movie. So um, it, there's the scene where... You know, Drew is in his hotel room. Oh, my God. We didn't even talk about it. There's so much to unpack with this movie. We didn't even talk about the wedding that's going on at the hotel. We don't need to get into all that. No, we, we, we don't. We don't. Time is time is of the essence. <laughs> Drew's in his hotel room and he is he's, you know, overwhelmed and he's lonely and he just wants someone to talk to. And Claire, of course, gave him her phone number consummate professional um and so he calls her and they end up talking all night and it's just kind of going back and forth between one of them saying you know revealing a truth about themselves and then the other one revealing a truth about themselves and um you know you just sort of get the sense of like oh my god they're just having this whole relationship over the course of like one phone call you know in one night and uh i guess i have to be a little forgiving because they are both very sleep deprived at this point. Yes. But Claire says men see things in a box and women see them in a round room. Non-binary people see things in the panopticon prison designed by notorious architect. Um, all yeah. possible genders visible at all times. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's just, it's just one of those like going back and forth between things where I where you're supposed to learn more about who these characters are, and she just and she's so like proud of herself. It's like she's reading a poem to him or something. I was like, am I being too hard on this? Is this some sort of like abstract artistic thing? Men see things in a box, and women see them in a round room. Is a round room like a box? Not in some ways. Women don't see corners i don't know what does that I mean i don't know i don't know what it means it's <laughs> have you ever been in a round room i must have at some point um i don't know if i've been in a round room the epcot ball i've never been inside the epcot ball <laughs> <laughs> wasn't there like a ride or something what, what about like a planetarium yeah, I, I can name one man who sees things in a round room professor x Ooh. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. Take that, Claire. Yeah, yeah. Take your gender essentialism and shove it, Claire. Two X Men movie had come out by the time this movie come out. You have no <laughs> excuse. 
so many other little moments in Elizabethtown that we could just pick at all night. But we have the other segment That's true. to get onto. We have to give appropriate time and space to the other segment. Yeah. Um, we will meet this other segment with a hurricane of love. <laughs> we sure will. Um, I can go first. Yeah, I can please go first. do. So um, as we said earlier, um, there is a not quite a movie within a movie, uh, a, a, a videotape within a DVD, uh, in this movie. Uh, and it is Rusty's learning to listen now. Part eight, part eight, part eight, right. Somehow the part eight makes it seem even more like J O I. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. This is, this is J O I before J O I was a thing. (laughs) Like. Explicit tag. We're all safe here. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, one of the DVD extras is the full video of Rusty's Learning to Listen Part 8, which is about three and a half minutes long, and it doesn't include the reaction shots of the characters in the movie. It's just the Rusty video. And I don't have children in my life on a regular basis, but I thought to myself... I don't think that this video would hypnotize children the way that Cameron Crowe seems to think it would. Now, now that you mentioned it, it's maybe it's somewhere in between JOI and Sissification <laughs> hypno, <laughs> hypno video. Yeah, yeah, ex- yeah, exactly. Because this, there this is, is a just, level of low level hypnotism, hypnotism going on that's unnerving. Th- there is. It gets cut out of the movie, but um, but in in the in the video itself. So, um, I in, instead of our usual, you know, play a game, have a have a discussion. I decided to do an experiment and I reached out on Mastodon and to some folks in my life uh, who have uh, children who are in this age range. uh, And I asked these parents uh, to show Rusty's learning to listen part eight to their child and to observe their reaction and report back to me. I can't wait to hear this. I don't know any <laughs> of the results. I have, um, I, I have three parents and uh, who were uh, able to have their child watch this video. Um, I will start with Chaos, uh, who uh, reported on Hen's child Milo who is age six um this one is a little bit of context Milo is not a native English speaker and is not fluent in English um this is a German speaking family um so this is uh the report that I got on Milo uh chaos says I said I will show him this video and I'm supposed to watch how he reacts okay I shouldn't have said that he was very focused during the whole video he said huh in the beginning but then started to smile and why does the man take this wood and then put it back then (laughs) inside the building ah they are building something and what does blow mean we told him but apart from that uh, we we told him but apart from that he plans to blow up the house we didn't translate i think he said something with daddy during the explosions, I mentioned that I think they use house models, and he wondered which scenes showed real houses and which showed small models. In the end, this video is funny. Not weird, but funny. My reaction is good. <laughs> Thank you. 
Thank you, German boy. (laughs) Then Julia showed the video to her daughter, Lara, who is seven years old. She complained that she didn't have a daddy, but just two mothers and demanded that this will be the last time they repeat the scene, please. (laughs) And and she got worried the workers could still be inside the house. So Larry's a very conscientious child. I like her. And and also good good for you for sticking up for your family, Lara. I Absolutely. mean this was this was two thousand five. Absolutely, um, if, we if, still had a lot of a lot of headway to make. But if in, at some point your teacher is going to say mom and dad in a very generic way, and, and you're going to raise your hand and go ah ah, and good oh, for you. Yeah, yeah. So so um, did not seem to uh, have much of an effect on on Lara, uh, but that's okay. Lara seems like. She's doing all right. Um, And then finally, uh, my friend Matt uh, reported on uh, his son, Zach, who is age seven. Uh, Zach liked the part where he said he'd blow it up. Zach said yes when the guy said he'd blow up the house if he helped build a new one. Then, Then yes when he said that he would mind mom and dad. He did notice when the guy was getting stern and was like, okay. But you could tell it was a step too far for Zach, who was already agreeing. Then the house blew up and he enjoyed that. I asked what he thought of the video and he said, I wouldn't tell mom and dad I blew up a house. <laughs> yeah, good point. So, so I think, I mean, I mean, this is a small sample size, um, three children, but... Uh, I, if you I, are young enough to uh, be hypnotized by a talking videotape, you might be too young to understand the concept of what's being asked of you. It yes. seems to be the recurring theme. <laughs> Um, but, uh, I would say even if you do not want to watch Elizabethtown for yourself, I would strongly recommend going on YouTube and looking up Rusty's Learning to Listen Part 8. There's a heavy Tim and Eric vibes to Rusty's yes. Learning to Listen Part 8. Yes. It's just, if the guy they got for Rusty, there's just something about him that's a little off in that Tim and Eric kind of way. I, I looked up the actor. Um, he does have multiple other screen credits. Uh, he's also a former NFL player. Oh, okay. So that kind of explains that like stern macho vibe he's got going on. I, two questions. One, do you think we can get uh, a TikTok trend going of parents making their kids watch Rusty Learning Listen Part 8? And two, do you think it will ultimately lead to a New York Times article about child abuse and TikTok parents? <laughs> that, that begins with like, somehow this escalated and now par- now children, there's a rash of children blowing up their own homes with the parents <laughs> inside? Oh, man. You know, uh, I, I can't quite... Uh, figure out how to wrangle that algorithm. Yeah. Um, so I couldn't be the one to right. do it, but maybe someone also, out there. Also, we don't have kids, so don't take our advice on what to do with your kids. Yes. We take no responsibility no. for the fatalities that Rusty's Learning to Listen Part 8 will produce in the future. Yeah, absolutely. We we assume that you are responsible parents who would give something a bit of a screen before showing it to your kids, but we don't have them ourselves, so maybe we're just talking out our asses. But um, Or... Maybe we're just too enthralled by Rusty ourselves to be making good decisions at this point. Yes. Um, I think I think that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's what it comes down to. Anyway, so uh, that was... Uh, 
That was Reg and Patrick's Little Podcaster's Corner. Oh, uh, <laughs> thank you to everyone who performed along. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thanks to everyone who participated in the experiments. Uh, so I will turn it over to you. What do you have for us? My segment for today is called JG Rider, which is an extremely inelegant uh, pun on Easy Rider. This is about a road trip. Now, something we didn't get super deep into is that in the span of about 10 hours, Claire creates this massive bespoke map slash uh, scrapbook scrapbook slash playlist uh, consisting of like 15 mix CDs meant to be played as Drew travels across the country with each segment of the country represented by a different CD. Yeah. Uh, it is insane. It is like, at what point? Every page has a photograph of her that she's taken herself. A it's, lot of them is like just her eyes peeking over a record album or something like that. It's very creepy. Very creepy. Um, also, it's like, how long did it take you to do this massive project that involved so much fucking collaging yeah. and so many CDs burned and everything? And uh, we, we, when did you decide to do it? Because your last interaction with him was him being like, by the way, I know you're supposed to have changed my life and everything because that's the kind of movie it is. But mostly I'm upset about a shoe and I don't care that I'm never going to see you again because Ben is still a big question mark, I guess. Yeah. Um, and she, at some point she had to decide, uh, I'm still going to put in fucking 15 days worth of work into the next eight hours and yeah. build this thing. Um, we decided we were going to build our own playlist uh, right. traveling across from Kentucky to Oregon. So what we had got to do is we chose our routes from Kentucky to Oregon. And then for each state we cross, we chose a different Judy Greer project to coincide with the state. <laughs> um, I'll start this time. Sure. Um, now, I... As a cheat, I don't know if you did this as well, but I just did Elizabethtown for Kentucky. There's mm -hmm. never going to be a Judy Greer project that is more Kentucky than Elizabethtown. Mm -hmm. um, so that's just sort of a gimme. That's the that's the free space and Monopoly board. Mm -hmm. um, then you move over to Tennessee, and what you're going to do is you're wanting to buy a bottle of Jack Daniels, and you're going to want to watch uh, the uh, Hulu sitcom reboot starring Tennessee's own Johnny Knoxville. Oh, and then you're going to feel bad because Johnny Knoxville's character in that is struggling to get sober. Mm. And you're going to be like, should I be sitting in a hotel room with a bottle of Jack Daniels? Is that what a healthy person does? I don't think so. <laughs> Next, you're going to go to Mississippi. And when you go to Mississippi, what you want to do is not leave the car or not leave the hotel room. Don't go and do anything in Mississippi. Okay. Mississippi's a horrible fucking place. When you are in a hotel room with basic cable, you're probably going to catch an episode of American Dad because it's syndicated on 15 channels. And if you watch an episode of American Dad, you have a four in however many episodes there are chance of catching an episode of Judy Greer because there are four episodes of American Dad with Judy Greer in it. So just watch American Dad. They play eight of them at a time on TBS. <laughs> One of them's going to have Judy Greer in it. Then you're going to move over to Louisiana. Now, Louisiana, that's a fun state. All right. Mm -hmm. That you got to take advantage of. What you're going to want to do in Louisiana is go on one of those classic riverboat casinos. And when you get home, you're going to count your winnings in front of the television as you watch The Grand, the uh, improvised poker comedy that Judy Greer has a small part in. We'll talk about it eventually. eventually. We haven't talked about it yet. Um, from Louisiana, we go to Texas. Now, in Texas, you're going to think about how horrific Texas abortion laws are, but you're not going to watch Grandma, which is just going to remind you of a different era when abortion laws weren't so horrible and in a place where they aren't because it's an L.A. movie. Mm -hmm. What you're going to want to do is watch the Funny or Die video called Republicans Get In My Vagina, which is a sarcastic 
a fake political ad in which women address the camera and say that they're voting Republican because they want less choice over what happens to their bodies. And Judy Greer is one of the uh, women in this Funny or Die video. Okay. Funny or Die is one of those things where it was just internet sketches like anything else, but for some reason it had enough clout that people have IMDb uh, profi- uh, credits. Like they have IMDb profiles packed with uh, Funny or Die credits. Yeah, yeah, they bring in a lot of established actors. If and... you look at Judy Greer's filmography, you'll see Republicans get in my vagina as like short film. And what they mean is three minute comedy sketch. Mm-hmm. Um, from Texas, we go down to Oklahoma. Now, Oklahoma, mm. some of the best methamphetamines in the country. <laughs> You're really going to want to smoke some meth in Oklahoma. And I was thinking, what do you watch when you smoke meth? And what you don't do when you smoke meth is sit down in front of a television. You got to be out. You got to be about. You got to be moving. You got to be knocking on people's back doors to see if Wayne Coyne lives in one of those houses. Wayne Coyne of the Flaming Lips, famous Oklahoma man. So what you want instead is a podcast. You're going to want to listen to Self Center. That was an Audible original uh, radio drama uh, comedy that Judy Greer was a part of. That was like a self-help new age uh, sort of a thing. And that way you don't have to stay put while you enjoy the Judy Greer thing in Oklahoma. From Oklahoma, we're driving over to Colorado. Now, Colorado, we're going to escalate from meth to mushrooms. Very good, very accessible mushrooms, psychedelic drugs in Colorado. And if you're on psychedelic drugs, you probably want to be watching the Eric Andre show, specifically the Judy Greer uh, episode where she's on and she watches Eric Andre drink shit. And she has... Now, she's Judy Greer. She understands comedy. She's tied into the comedy world. She's not one of the celebrities who had never heard of Eric Andre, I firmly believe. So she is putting in the performance of someone who is witnessing the most nightmarish, horrible thing they can imagine, and it's chilling her to her soul. And I believe it is a performance, and it's great. Uh, this is also on YouTube, so just you don't have to watch the whole Eric Andre show. Just watch that YouTube clip of Judy Greer on Eric Andre, but make sure you do mushrooms first, because it's Colorado. Now, Wyoming is a big square with nothing inside of it. <laughs> so what you're going to want to do is watch a big movie with nothing inside of it, The Key Man. From Wyoming... <laughs> We go to Idaho. Now, Idaho is difficult for me because the only thing I knew about the national identity of, of Idaho was potatoes, and I can't think of any Judy Greer potato things. So I looked into the names of all its state parks, and it turns out there's one of its state parks. It's called Castle Rocks State Park, mm-hmm. which Castle Rock is a famous location in a Stephen King's u- sort of shared universe. Right. Stephen King, the Carrie remake. You watch Carrie in Wyoming. That is uh, as, ta- as much as I could connect Judy Greer to, uh, Idaho. to Idaho, not Wyoming. Now, finally, we have made it to Oregon. Now, you're going to want to go to Portland, and you don't need to watch any movie when you're in Portland. What you're going to want to do is go to one of the apothecaries that I'm sure is on the corner of every street, and you're going to want to get some wild supplements. These are some uh, sort of self-help uh, uh, what, what, not mushroom self-help. tincture. Mushroom tincture. What For, would you What would you call this? Uh, not new age. It's it's like herbalism. wellness. Yeah, wellness. wellness. It's a, it's a wellness. It, it's, it's it's Judy Greer's wellness brand. She sells mushroom tinctures to help with uh, menopause yeah. and things of of that nature. And uh, I think that that is a fitting way to celebrate Judy Greer in Portland, Oregon. I love it. I love it. I had a realization when you were talking about doing meth in Oklahoma and then going to Colorado and and doing shrooms. Yeah. Greer and loathing in Las Vegas. Mother You're stupid. You never told me that. You never told me that. Anyway, oh. better luck next time. What was yours? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm joking. That was a <laughs> 
That was comedy jokes. <laughs> I actually, believe it or not, do not have a lot of my self-worth invested in my ability to create puns. Yeah. Yeah. Based around Judy Greer's name. <laughs> to be fair, to, yeah. To be fair, I think we were we were both kind of panicking and floundering for a name yeah. before we started recording. Anyway, um, so uh, not 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 to not to flog a dead horse, but you know, I, I've had a day. I'm full of antihistamines. I'm feeling kind of loopy, and um, when, when I sat down to um, figure out how I, how I would meet this challenge of a Judy Greer themed. Uh, multimedia road trip experience from Kentucky to Oregon. The writer Elizabeth Gilbert talks about the concept of creativity as uh, something that exists outside of you and you don't so much create things as you channel creative spirits through you or, or that, that you channel creativity through you. You you don't, you're not the one who's building it. You're the one who's channeling the the creativity. And I feel like that's what I did with this and whatever I was channeling into the the JG writer segment came to me in the form of, of a character uh their name is Schmer they are a depressed hobbit nap envy oh and Schmer is the one who created um this road trip guide and I will do my best now to ask Schmer to return to me after this Elizabethtown conversation. This is like being front row at a Chris Gaines concert. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And um, Schmer is going to guide you across America and across Judy Greer's career. Start out watching Elizabethtown in Lowellville because all the scenes that open up your mind to the possibilities of what cinema can actually be take place in Lowellville. Not Elizabethtown, which the movie is named after. Lowellville. Get in your quirky vintage car and drive northwest into Illinois while you're eating the best chain restaurant cheese curds in history at Culver's. Watch Kissing a Fool, which was filmed in Chicago. Judy Greer says in her autobiography that she was discovered while walking down a street in Chicago wearing a blue raincoat. As a depressed hobbit nap envy, I only exist to inspire people to eat cheese curds. So I can relate to her story. After Illinois, you'll be driving through Iowa. Seeing mile after mile of cornfields will make you want to jump out of the car and dance in the sunset. Speaking of corniness, a field in Iowa is the perfect place for you to watch The Wedding Planner. At the border of Iowa and Nebraska, it's time to start playing Mix CD number 12 that I made especially for you. It's not actually a mix CD, I just burned Bruce Springsteen's album Nebraska, but the moody sonic atmosphere is perfect for contemplating if me cutting off a lock of your hair while you were asleep was actually romantic or just plain old terrifying. <laughs> Speaking of terrifying, stop at the famously haunted Seven Sisters Road in Nebraska City in the dead of night and watch the episode of Comedy Bang Bang featuring Judy Greer. And the legend has it that at least one of the seven sisters who were hanged along the road will appear and complain that they don't get Reggie Watts' comedy music. <laughs> hey, Tiger. Did you survive the night? I knew you could. Leaving Nebraska, we head into Wyoming, 
did I say we? I meant you. I'm not following you. Anyway, let's watch Jurassic World. I mean, you watch Jurassic World by yourself, and I'll be daydreaming under a willow tree somewhere, not hiding in your motel room closet. Get some gas in the tank and head on into Idaho. Stop for a picnic lunch in Hell's Canyon, the deepest canyon in America. While you're there, watch The Descendants, which I think is super deep. After you're done watching it, write a super deep poem about me because you're falling in love with me. Hold fast to your dreams, Jellybean, because... <laughs> excuse me, excuse me. Hold... <laughs> Hold fast to your dreams, Jelly Bean, because you've derived in Oregon, your destination. Judy Greer's in an episode of Portlandia, so you might as well watch that. People are going to feel so dumb when they realize they haven't been listening to this podcast. This is the best fucking podcast. <laughs> you fucking clowns. I'm just film spotting. I'm calling them all out. How did this get made? I'm sure you did an episode of Elizabethtown. You didn't have fucking schmear. <laughs> You fucks. <laughs> this show is great. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> I really enjoyed that. Oh, I'm glad. I should, I should have allergy attacks more often, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that leaves us with just one more task ahead of us, and that is judilization. That's right. Judy Greer, in so many movies... Some of these movies are good. Some of these movies, not so great. But the question that we're asking isn't how good is the movie? The question we're asking is how good is the movie at utilizing the talents of Judy Greer? Um, just to give a super quick recap, uh, you can find the whole list uh, in order on my letterbox, Panda Bear Shape. Um, we have Addicted to Fresno at number one, best Judilization, best use of Judy Greer in a movie. Uh, so far. So far. And then at number 13, we have In Memory of My Father. Um, so in between those two are the other movies we have covered, and we will be sliding Elizabeth Town in there somewhere and making it a list of 14. So, Patrick, do you have any initial thoughts on uh, where... Elizabethtown fits into the ranking of Judilization. I think this is a movie that uses Judy Greer correctly, mm. understands what kind of a player on a team she can be. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't do a good job with it. And so I would put it either above or below Pottersville. So either the new number nine or the new number 10. I would either put it in between what planet are you from in Pottersville or in between Pottersville and Key Man? Okay, I, I can definitely work with that. Um, I think Elizabethtown does a better job of utilizing than Pottersville. Okay, I, I can agree with that, yeah. Um, I, I think the emotion is less restrained. I think in, in Pottersville, you have Parker holding it in the entire time and I love seeing Judy Greer when she is able to just let the emotions out and let them flow yes. and you know she she does have those moments in this movie so I would make 
Elizabethtown, the new number nine. Okay, let's do it. All right. So Elizabethtown, not as well utilized as what planet are you from, but better utilized than Pottersville. Um, so with that, uh, we end our discussion on Elizabethtown. Still so many things to say about Elizabethtown. Uh, if you are able to get a ha- your hands on a copy and you want to look back at 2005 and say, huh, <laughs> I would recommend it. Yeah. Um, it's a night. It's a, you, it's, you, yeah, you get out of it and you go, that was an experience that I'll remember. And you know what? There's a lot of these movies I don't remember so well. I was extremely impressed that you remembered that her character's name was Parker in Pottersville because that P- Pottersville, also a bad movie, barely remember it. Yeah, it's just, it, you know what? I, I, I would chalk that up to my day job and having to remember people's names yeah. at my day job. Yeah. I just I just sort of, my, uh, my brain has uh, developed whatever mechanism needs to do that. Not useful things like not stammering on the podcast, but what can you do? <laughs> brains are brains. Next up, we are releasing our spooky season Ooh. episode, our very first Judy Greer Halloween episode, uh, and we will be watching the 2018 remake of Halloween by the guy who did Pineapple Express. Yes, he did. David Gordon Green. David Gordon Green. Yeah. Also did all the real girls with Paul Schneider. See, it's all one big, beautiful web of cinema. So join us next time for Halloween. Thank you for making it this far. Um, 96 Greers is part of the Now Playing Network. Check out the other podcasts at nowplayingnetwork.net. Follow us on Mastodon at 96greers at laserdisc.party. Follow me on Letterboxd at Panda Bear Shape, where, as I said before, you can see the official ranking of Judalization. Email us at 96greers at proton.me. And until next time, I'm Reg. And I'm Patrick. And, and say, say goodbye to these. Thank you.